As a licensed private investigator and true crime journalist, I get asked a lot about why people kill. And I often say that there are only three motives for murder. Money, sex, and money to get more sex. It's kind of a cocktail party punchline, but I'm making a serious point. When you work in true crime, you find out fast how closely money and sex are linked. I'll be following that logic this week when I take a look at a case that you may think you know everything about. The horrific murder of Shanann Watts and her two daughters by her husband, Chris Watts. This case has been covered extensively by everyone from TV news to true crime podcasts. There's been a Lifetime movie and a very popular Netflix series. Almost everyone focuses on Chris Watts' infidelity, his passionate affair with a female coworker, is the main motive for the murders. But behind the scenes, the financial pressure in the Watts household was building to unbearable levels. Pressure that could make a red-collar criminal decide that he wanted a simpler life, a clean slate, and that murdering his entire family was the only way to get it. We're gonna take a deep dive inside the psychology of a family annihilator, and it's terrifying. I'm Katherine Townsend. This is Red Collar. On August 13, 2018, Nicole Atkinson was worried. She had dropped her close friend, Shanann Watts, off at her home in a quiet subdivision of Frederick, Colorado, at around 1.48 a.m. The ring doorbell footage captured 34-year-old Shanann coming home and walking into her front door at 2825 Saratoga Trail. This is the footage that's been seen around the world in the Netflix documentary, American Murder, The Family Next Door. So Nicole knew that Shanann had made it safely home. But the next morning, Shanann, who was 15 weeks pregnant, wasn't answering Nicole's text messages. And Shanann lived on social media, yet there was nothing posted by her that morning. And when Nicole realized that Shanann had also missed her morning doctor's appointment, she didn't waste any time. She and her son went back to Shanann's house. They called the police. They also called Shanann's husband, 32-year-old Chris Watts. And they noticed that he, unlike them, did not seem overly concerned. He told Nicole that Shanann had said she had a play date with a friend, but he said he didn't know the friend's name. The scene at the home was eerie. Shanann's white Lexus was in the driveway, and the house was silent. Shanann and her daughters, four-year-old Bella and three-year-old Celeste, were nowhere to be found. But their car seats were still in the Lexus. As police chatted with Chris Watts, Shanann's friends immediately noticed that Chris seemed to be behaving strangely and suspected that he had had something to do with her disappearance. Nicole worked with Shanann selling products for a multi-level marketing company called Lavelle. And over the weekend, at a conference in Scottsdale, Arizona, Shanann had confessed to Nicole that she was having problems at home with Chris. He was cold toward her, she said. He told her that he no longer wanted the baby. She suspected that he may be having an affair. So as the entire country saw footage of Chris's pregnant wife and his two daughters broadcast on national television, detectives were taking a closer look at Chris. Chris appeared on local news, tearfully begging for his family's safe return. But he seemed oddly unemotional. And soon, as we all know, 
police figured out that his story didn't add up. Soon, investigators had him hooked up to a lie detector. And after failing the polygraph, he confessed to investigators that he had strangled Shanann to death. Eventually, he led police to her body, which he had buried face down at a work site 40 miles from home. He also led police to the bodies of Bella and Celeste, who he had strangled and stuffed into separate oil tankers. Chris has told several different stories about what happened that night. And since Shanann is dead, we'll probably never know the whole truth. And I want to be really clear here. I am not in any way blaming the victim for anything that happened. Nothing can excuse the absolute psychopathy that Chris Watts displayed towards Shanann and the children. What he did was evil. But as we look into the red-collar criminal mentality, I want to ask the question, what happened over that summer to push a seemingly normal father of two to murder his entire family? Could money, rather than a mistress, have been the main motivating factor? Shanann was born in 1984 in New Jersey, and later, her family relocated to North Carolina. Chris Watts, a mechanic who worked for Anadarko Oil Company at the time of the murders, also came from a middle-class background. Chris was born in Fayetteville, North Carolina. He had an older sister, Jamie, who helped raise him. At their respective high schools, Chris and Shanann appeared to be polar opposites. Shanann was popular and loved by everyone. Chris was well-liked, too, according to family and friends, but was overweight and shy, unlike his sister Jamie, who was always described as a social butterfly. In 2002, Shanann married her first husband, attorney Leonard King, and began working at a custom car fittings company called The Dirty South. The couple divorced when Shanann was just 23. When she was 25, Shanann bought her pride and joy, a beautiful home in the posh Charlotte suburb of Belmont, 4,000 square feet, 12 rooms, and a $309,000 mortgage. After her divorce, Shanann began having health problems. Eventually, she was diagnosed with lupus and fibromyalgia. She met Chris Watts in 2010 when he reached out to her on Facebook. Their love story and family life would later be played out on and be dissected in public by that same social media platform. Friends and family say that Chris stuck with Shanann through various health crises, and they fell deeply in love. Chris moved in with Shanann at her home on Peninsula Drive in late 2010 and started turning his paycheck over to her every month to cover expenses, according to John Glatt's book, The Perfect Father, The True Story of Chris Watts. The couple got engaged in 2011. Shanann had the dominant personality, and at least back then, Chris seemed thrilled to be with her and happy to go along with whatever she wanted. Chris stated to investigators that he allowed Shanann to be in control of the relationship and to be herself. He said at the time that this was one of the things that he found most attractive about her. Chris and Shanann were married on November 3, 2012 at the Doubletree Hilton in North Carolina. Shanann was worried that her medical conditions could make it difficult for her to conceive, but she had their daughter, Bella, in 2014. She gave birth to their second daughter, Celeste, who they called Cece, the next year. By all accounts, Shanann was a doting mom and her children were the center of her universe. As we all know by now from Shanann's countless cheerful Facebook videos, many of which were shown in the chilling Netflix documentary, the couple portrayed themselves as successful and thriving parents and entrepreneurs. Shanann Watts captioned one of the hundreds of photos that she posted online, quote, Happy Husband Appreciation Day. 
I couldn't imagine a better man for us, end quote. She posted that in April, four months before she was murdered, according to CNN. She also wrote, quote, You spoil us with love and attention. You put up with three impatient, demanding women in the house. You work so hard every day to provide for us. I love you so much, end quote. But the reality was much darker. Behind the scenes, the couple was in serious financial trouble. And behind Chris's passive good guy mask, seething resentment was beginning to build. In 2015, Chris and Shanann filed for bankruptcy. According to the bankruptcy filing documents, which were posted on Radar Online, the couple listed their home as an asset valued at $400,000. Meanwhile, their liabilities totaled $448,820. The year prior to the bankruptcy filing, the couple had a combined income of $91,000, according to Yahoo Finance. This mostly came from Chris. Chris earned around $63,000 from his job at Anadarko Petroleum, according to records. In 2014, Shanann wrote that she had earned $2,977 per month from her job at Children's Hospital of Colorado. Even with two incomes, they were spending more money than they were making every single month. And they had significant debt, over $70,000 in total, most of it from student loans and credit card purchases, according to the filings. The couple reported two savings accounts that had a total of $9.51 in them, They also had a joint checking account with $864. According to the filing, Chris and Shanann's large mortgage payments were one of the causes of their financial problems. They also listed unpaid student loans of around $11,000, as well as medical and credit card debts. The amounts owed included several thousand dollars to department stores, including Macy's and Nordstrom's, and almost $19,000 to a federal credit union. Like many young couples, they appeared to have been living beyond their means when the recession hit. In fact, the only assets that they had, other than the house, were wedding rings valued at $1,000, a 2006 Ford Mustang valued at $8,275, and a dog, presumably Dieter the Dachshund, valued at $5. And in that bankruptcy filing, the judge specifically noted that the couple's finances would not improve after the birth of their second child. By the time of the murders, most media reports painted a picture of a family that had turned its finances around. Lured by the promise of working from home, Shanann began getting involved in multi-level marketing companies. She was selling products for Lavelle, a company that does direct marketing as a seller of nutritional supplements. Shanann focused on a range of products called Thrive. The company earned revenue of almost $500 million in 2017, the same year that the company reached $1 billion in lifetime orders according to the website, mlmnewsreport.com. Shanann had joined multi-level marketing companies before Lavelle, including, according to media reports, It Works, 31, Unique, and Origami Owl. She admitted in social media posts that she had basically been broke at the time when she began to sell Thrive. But after she started, she painted a rosy financial picture, saying that the position gave her the independence to work from home or anywhere she wanted while caring for and traveling with her kids. Chris started using Shanann's Thrive products as well. He started dieting, controlling his eating, drinking protein shakes, and working out constantly. Chris lost a lot of weight, and he seemed, at least on the outside, to be getting more confident. For the first time in his life, he started getting more attention from women. And for once, it seemed that Chris felt as if women were flirting with him rather than the other way around. 
In June 2018, he met Nicole Kessinger, a 30-year-old co-worker, at work, and the attraction was immediate. By the end of June, Chris and Nicole had said I love yous and were in a serious, intense sexual relationship. But Chris had a problem. Shanann was pregnant with the couple's third child, a baby that they had already named Nico. Shanann made her sweet surprise video, the one she posted on Facebook, of her showing the pregnancy test to Chris, wearing a T-shirt that read, Oops, we did it again. The expression on Chris's face was one of shock, and looking back, not necessarily in a good way. He may have been thinking about what that bankruptcy judge said, that the family's financial situation would go downhill after Shanann gave birth to her second child. With a third child, the financial pressure would be worse than ever. And to a complete sociopath who views people as possessions, the math must have been simple. Shanann and the kids were keeping him from a new and more financially free life with his mistress. Nicole, as he saw it, was an asset to his life. Shanann and the kids were liabilities. It's around this time, he told investigators, that he began thinking about killing Shanann. On June 14th, Shanann recorded Bella singing a special song for her dad. The lyrics include the phrase, quote, My daddy is a hero. He helps me grow up strong, end quote. On June 27th, Shanann and the girls went to North Carolina for five weeks to visit her parents, Frank and Sandra Ruzicek. Chris stayed home. He said that his plans were to work and work out. In reality, he later admitted to investigators that he spent most of this time with Nicole. At this point, their affair went to the next level. And by July, text messages shown in the Netflix series show that Shanann was getting suspicious. Chris was not touching her. He was not having sex with her. And, as with so many red-collar cases, credit card receipts tell the story. On July 14th, Chris and Nicole went on a date to a car museum. Shanann called him four times, but Chris never answered. On July 28th, Chris and Nicole went to Sand Dunes National Park. She surfed down a dune and made a video for Chris, talking about how happy she was that he joined her and blowing kisses. Chris then flew to North Carolina to be with his family. They went to the beach and took happy family photos. But the situation with Chris and Shanann was deteriorating even further, and he was constantly in touch with Nicole at this point. There was also friction between Shanann and Chris's parents, Ronnie and Cindy Watts. Chris's parents had reportedly never liked Shanann. And again, money seemed to be an issue. Shanann had never gotten along with Chris's parents. From the beginning, they had suspicions about the fact that she owned an expensive home, they asked how she made her money, and they didn't attend Chris and Shanann's wedding. Then, over the summer, Shanann became enraged at Cindy. She accused her of intentionally exposing their daughter Celeste, who had a potentially fatal nut allergy, to pistachio ice cream. Chris would refer to the incident as Nutgate, and tell police that he began to resent Shanann for driving a wedge between him and his parents. Meanwhile, his girlfriend was doing searches for wedding dresses online. On August 9th, Shanann texted a friend to say she was canceling the gender reveal party. Chris was cold, she said, not initiating sex. She wrote a letter to him expressing her feelings and asking what was wrong. On August 11th, Chris got a babysitter. He said he was going out alone to a Colorado Rockies game. In reality, he took his girlfriend to a sports bar. 
I think that what happened that week was a pivotal turning point financially for Chris because in the past, when he'd gone out with Nicole, he would use an Anadarko prepaid card. And Shanann had no access to those financial records. But the minute that he pulled out his credit card that he shared with Shanann on that date with Nicole on August 11th, he had to have known that Shanann would see it. And she did. Shanann noticed a $68 charge on the credit card. She later told a friend that she had asked Chris what he had eaten. He said he had a salmon and a beer. But when she added up the amount that he claimed he had spent eating alone, it didn't add up. Shanann controlled the family finances, according to Chris, and it did not take long for her to figure out that something was wrong. According to discovery documents, Shanann talked to an attorney about a possible divorce in March. And the attorney basically advised her to do everything in her power to save her marriage. The attorney also made the point that divorces were expensive. And it absolutely does seem that Shanann was doing everything in her power to save her marriage before the murders. She wrote the letter to Chris. She texted him loving messages. She wanted them to go to Aspen for a romantic weekend that they had bought on Groupon. But, she had told her close friends, if it came to it, she was willing to fight for custody of those kids. And, Chris probably feared, to take him to the cleaners financially. That same week, Chris was searching the price of an Audi A7. It seems that Chris was doing the math on the cost of a potential split and probably realizing that he couldn't afford it. That same week, he also told Nicole that he would look for apartments to rent. But later, while they were having dinner, told her that he probably couldn't afford the deposit. Chris did eventually tell Shanann that he would agree to the Aspen trip. And he later told investigators to counseling. Basically, he agreed to whatever Shanann wanted. She was probably happy. She thought that this was a loving gesture on his part, that maybe they were getting back on track. In reality, he agreed because he already knew that Shanann would be gone. The night before the murders, Nicole's search history showed that she did a Google search on prepping for anal sex and another one for threesomes. After she got home from her work trip, Shanann and Chris got into a final confrontation that only one of them would survive. Again, we'll never know what happened that night, but there is one more interesting fact that I picked out that relates to finances. Just after 2 a.m., Shanann got an automatic notice that her credit card had been declined. So I'll always wonder if she brought up the money situation with Chris that night. After Shanann and the girls disappeared, detectives took Chris in for questioning. At first, he denied having anything to do with Shanann's disappearance. He claimed that he had no idea where she and the girls were. He thought they may be on a play date with a friend. And an early police report stated that Chris tried to downplay the couple's financial issues. He told police that, quote, he couldn't log in to check the bank accounts because she does the finances. He said he knows the password, but not the username. Chris advised if there was a stockpile of cash in the house, he would not have known about it, end quote. But he did admit to investigators that he had fallen out of love with Shanann and told her that he wanted a divorce. He said that the last time that he saw her was just after 5 a.m., after they had an emotional talk about a separation. He said that he kissed her, then loaded up his truck and went to work. When Shanann and the girls failed to show up, Chris's girlfriend, Nicole, was getting suspicious of Chris's story. She went to the police and confessed that she had been having an affair with him. Nicole told investigators that she did not know Chris was married when they started seeing each other. She said he had told her that he and Shanann were separated and in the process of divorcing. 
But a search of her internet records revealed that she was doing internet searches for Shanann Watts, who we know had a very public media profile, as early as September 2017, many months before she started dating Chris. She also reportedly deleted text messages between her and Chris, then did a search on if the police could recover deleted text messages. After she talked to investigators, she also did a search of Amber Fry and how much she made from her book deal after she helped police investigate Scott Peterson. But investigators have said repeatedly, there is no indication that she knew anything about or had anything to do with what happened to Shanann or the girls. She also told police that she knew about Chris's children and she was fine with the fact that he was a father. And while many media reports focused on the salacious details of the case, like the bikini and nude photos of Nicole that Chris downloaded into a secret calendar, they left out the crucial but more mundane financial details that Chris had shared with Nicole about feeling trapped. Nicole told police that Chris had said he and Shanann were always housebroke and said that Shanann was basically a shopaholic who could not rein in her spending habits. He told Nicole that he had only bought the house because Shanann pressured him into it and because he said it reminded her of a home they had had in North Carolina. According to discovery documents quoted by CBS Local Denver, Nicole told police that she believed that her affair with Chris may have accelerated the process. But she said that she believes that, quote, money is the biggest catalyst for this event happening, end quote. At a National Institute of Journalists seminar titled Men Who Murder Their Families, What the Research Tells Us, an expert panel discussed a recent spike in news reports of familicide cases. They said that 91% of the time, the killer is a male. Most family annihilators are in their 30s and are non-Hispanic white males like Chris. Dr. N.G. Burrell, a forensic psychologist and director of a private consulting company called New York Forensics, told Rolling Stone that sometimes there are inciting incidents that lead to family annihilation, such as a job loss. In some ways, though, Chris is an anomaly. Many family annihilators are physically abusive, jealous, and controlling. But in around a third of the cases, according to Rolling Stone, the killers are, quote, more controlled, repressed, depressed individuals who may be on the edge of a psychotic break, end quote. These offenders typically do not have a record of domestic violence. They're seething with repressed rage, but they keep it on the inside until they lash out in the ultimate act of violence. The Rolling Stone article also read, quote, Additionally, unlike many family annihilators, Watts didn't have a history of domestic violence or controlling abusive behavior, nor was he motivated by an impending catastrophic event, such as an impending job loss or financial disaster, end quote. But in fact, if you view the killings from a red-collar perspective, a completely psychopathic, narcissistic point of view, there may have been three impending catastrophic events, and all of them were related to money. First, the birth of baby Nico, a baby that Chris did not want. Second, the divorce, which would prove financially devastating to Chris because he would be paying child support for three children for decades to come. Children he was afraid that he may now never see and who would prove seriously inconvenient for him and Nicole. And third, Chris was in danger of losing his house. Chris Watts had one asset to his name, the 4,177-square-foot home at 2825 Saratoga Trail. The house was purchased for just over $392,000 in May 2013, according to court records. By the time of the murders, Chris had only paid around $42,000 on his mortgage. 
The website, True Crime Rocket, did a detailed breakdown of the couple's finances and wrote, quote, For Chris Watts, the fairy tale was the house, not what was in it, end quote. At the time of the murders, Chris Watts and Shanam were also facing another lawsuit from their homeowners association. It's kind of a complicated story because Shanann said she had been making the monthly payments, but they'd gone to the wrong address. But whatever the result, the couple owed the Wyndham Hill Master Association $1,533.80 in back homeowners association dues. They were in danger of being sued for foreclosure. We've taken a look at their liabilities, but what about their assets? We know what Chris's salary was. Media reports claim that Shanann's job paid her a reported $140,000 a year in salary. But how much was Shanann really making with Thrive? A lot of people have asked if multi-level marketing itself could have played some role in the killings. In 2018, Shanann described herself on Instagram as an 80K VIP Lavelle promoter. But is that 80,000 sales, commission, total income? How many people are in these teams that are splitting these bonuses? According to various sources, the 80000 represented Shanann's lifetime sales amount, meaning the total value of the amount of product that she and everyone else on her team down the line had sold. According to the 2016 bankruptcy documents, all of the income listed came from Chris. Under other income, it lists direct sales commission, $111, for her as monthly income. Shanann took several trips that were paid for by Lavelle, six in two years, according to Yahoo Finance. And the trips that Shanann went on looked glamorous and painted a picture of success. She took Chris with her to some of them, destinations including San Diego and the Dominican Republic. She wrote in a Facebook post on June 16th, quote, I am in love with this lifestyle of just living and enjoying every moment with my family. I'm addicted to creating memories and living life to its fullest, end quote. But with multi-level marketing, the companies normally only pay for the hotel which they negotiate cheap block rates for. And they shell out for food during the hours of the conference. The rest of the costs, food, drinks, airfare, transportation, even baggage fees, are paid by the attendee. Shanann Watts put a lot of the couple's life on social media. And as police investigated the case, the juxtaposition between the fantasy life that they put online and the ugly reality was shocking. And Shanann reportedly had another plan for dealing with the debt on the house. To save money in the past, Shanann had invited her parents to move in with them. Chris's in-laws had lived in their basement for 15 months. They helped with the kids, but Chris would later admit to investigators that having his mother-in-law downstairs in the basement was tough. This time, Shanann had asked their friends, Josh and Cassie Rosenberg, who also sold Thrive products, to move in with them. On August 11th, just a few days before the murders, Josh texted Chris to ask if it was still okay for them to come stay at the house. So the couple's dream home was underwater and in danger of being foreclosed on. They had massive credit card debt, were being sued by multiple people. And to top it all off, Shanann's friends and fellow thrivers were moving in. Through it all, Shanann and Chris shared photos of beach vacations, screen grabs of sweet text messages, photos of their two daughters dancing around the house. After Shanann posted that sweet photo of her daughter singing, she and her daughters were dead. Chris finally confessed to investigators that he had strangled Shanann and buried her body in a shallow grave near his work site. 
At first, Chris told investigators that Shanann strangled the girls and that he had killed her in a rage after he found their two bodies. Investigators immediately knew that this story was ridiculous, as did anyone who knew Shanann and the fact that she would have done anything to protect her children. Also, investigators asked, if Shanann killed her children, why didn't Chris call the police? Why would he calmly bury the bodies and clean up with bleach? Everything about the crime indicated that it had been planned. Nothing suggested a crime of passion. Soon, cornered, Chris changed his story and gave even more horrific details. He admitted that he had strangled Shanann because he wanted out of the marriage and said she had threatened him, saying that he would never see the kids again. He claimed that after killing her, he wrapped her body up and loaded it into the truck, then drove to the work site with Bella and Celeste in the back of the car. Once at the site, he said that he strangled the girls and dropped them into separate oil tankers. Chris was arrested and charged with three counts of first-degree murder for the killings of Shanann, Bella, and Celeste, and three counts of tampering with a human body. He would later face additional charges for ending the life of baby Nico. In November 2018, Chris pleaded guilty to all of the charges against him. Five counts of first-degree murder, three counts of tampering with a deceased human body, and one count of unlawful termination of a pregnancy. In court, all of the lurid details of the case came out. But District Attorney Michael Rourke only briefly mentioned the Watts family finances in court, according to CBS Denver. He said, quote, I think it became pretty obvious that he found a new love interest, and for whatever reason in his mind, divorce wasn't an option. I can't speak as to why anyone would take the steps that he did, but during the course of our investigation, other than the normal stressors of financial stress that I think most of us have, the occasional marital stress, we couldn't find anything else that was a significant enough motive to annihilate your family in the manner that he did, end quote. On November 19, 2018, Chris Watts was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole, including 48 years for the unlawful termination of Shanann's pregnancy and 36 years for the disposal of the bodies. He's currently incarcerated at the Wapun Correctional Institute in Wisconsin. He was moved from Colorado due to concerns for his safety. Chris spoke to agents from the Colorado Bureau of Investigations from behind bars and gave them even more details of what happened the night of the killings. And Chris continued to make headlines, even from prison. He struck up a pen pal relationship with Cheryl Cradle, a 65-year-old Christian grandmother. He decided to cooperate with Cradle, many believe due to her Christian beliefs, which he may have believed meant that he could control the narrative. He told Cradle that it was his obsession with Nicole that caused him to commit the murders. He added that he had tried to give Shanann oxycodone after Nicole told him she wanted to be the one to give birth to Chris's first son. Cadle told DailyMail.com, quote, Christopher says he loved her like he has never loved anyone else before, end quote. So once again, rather than taking responsibility for his actions, Chris Watts blames someone else. And once again, proves that the only person that he is sorry for in this saga is himself. Chris also describes Shanann and the girl's final moments in gruesome detail to Cadle. And many of those details conflict with what he told investigators. Cadle wrote in her book, Letters from Christopher, The Tragic Confessions of the Watts Family Murders, which was excerpted in the Daily Mail, that Chris said he had a, quote, newfound commitment to God, end quote. And in the letter published in the Daily Mail, Chris said that despite the multiple life sentences, he believes that he may one day be released. 
He wrote in part, quote, Do I feel like I should be incarcerated for the act I committed? I most definitely think so. Do I imagine myself ever doing anything like this or be a danger to society? I most definitely think not. If I were ever to be released, I know I would go straight to a ministry and start going to jails, prisons, and help inmates, end quote. Many of the details that Chris gave Cadal seem to back up beliefs that Shanann's family members have shared with the media. They openly stated from the beginning that they believed that Chris was lying about how their daughter really died. They say Shanann would absolutely have fought to protect her daughters. And they believe that Chris's lack of injuries meant that Shanann must have been sleeping or otherwise incapacitated when he attacked her. He hinted to Cadal that this was true. He said that after telling Shanann that he wanted a divorce, she got drowsy and he put his hands around her throat. He said that her eyes filled with blood and described watching her die. He said, quote, I knew that if I took my hands off of her, she would still keep me from Nikki. They asked me why she didn't fight back. It's because she couldn't fight back. Her eyes filled with blood. As she looked at me and she died, I knew she was gone when she relieved herself, end quote. Again, though, Chris took the coward's way out because he could have been with Nicole. But leaving his family would have shattered the image that everyone had of him as the nice guy. It would have taken maturity and strength of character that he did not have. But it also would have taken money, money that he did not have. The prestigious preschool that the girls attended cost $25,000 a year for both of them. A payment to that school for $1,000 was due the morning of the murder. They also had the mortgage payment of $2,700 due, the one they had missed for the last three months, and the upcoming lawsuit by the Housing Association for almost $1,600. And if you don't believe money is a motive, think about this. Right after the murders, Chris made some phone calls. He called the expensive school that his daughters had been enrolled in to tell them that they were not coming back. He called the hotel in Aspen that he was meant to stay in with Shanann to work on their marriage to cancel their reservation. And when the hotel told him that he would need to contact Groupon, he searched contact information for that company. And he called a realtor to put his house on the market. After he buried his pregnant wife face down in a shallow grave, squeezed the bodies of his two daughters through the eight-inch openings and dropped them into the oil tankers, money was clearly on his mind. Was Chris really thinking about Nicole when he strangled Shanann? Or was he thinking about the fact that he would be stuck paying child support for three kids, with Shanann controlling his access to them for decades to come? Chris's entire image as a nice guy and great dad, plus the front of this successful lifestyle that he showed the world, were coming to an end. So he killed the one person who could reveal his fraud. Everyone would know that Shanann would never leave her daughters. So they were collateral damage and they had to disappear too. According to multiple media reports, women continue to send Chris letters and to visit him, even while he's behind bars. He continues to blame everything from demonic possession to Nicole for his actions. After the trial, Nicole disappeared from the public eye. In 2018, it was reported that she moved from Colorado to another state, where she may have been placed in the witness protection program and started a new job. According to the Daily Mail, Nicole applied for a name change in Jefferson County, Colorado. Raider Online reported back in 2018 that this was a step that she wanted to take due to the death threats that she received after coming forward. Shanann's parents won a civil suit against Chris for wrongful death, 
and in November 2019, he agreed to pay them $6 million, though they believe they will almost certainly never see a dime of that money. The Watts' dream home remains empty. After the murders, Chris defaulted on the mortgage, according to People. The magazine examined public records, which listed that the property is now worth $645,000. When no one bid on the house during an auction, the lender kept it for sale for an entire year, but no one wanted to buy it. It was taken out of foreclosure last year and technically still belongs to Chris Watts. So in the end, he did get to keep his house. But if it's sold, all of the money will go straight to Shanann's family. Red Collar is an Audio Chuck original podcast. Research and writing by me, Katherine Townsend, with production assistance from Alyssa Gostola and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, redcollarpodcast.com. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? Oh! <laughs>